Amen. Let me add my welcome to Steve's. My name's Kevin. I'm the pastor here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, And there was one announcement that we did forget to put in the bulletin. We mentioned it last week, but in case you were not here, uh, we have hired a new youth director. His name is Matt Bryson. Uh, He and his wife, Maddie, and their one-year-old son, Bo, uh, will be here in March. So his first day will be March the 1st. So you'll see him the first Sunday in March. Uh, But just to give you an update there. Uh, We have been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes through the month of January and February. Uh, We're about to wrap it up, and so our next stop will be uh, the letter to 1 Peter, uh, Peter's first letter, rather. Uh, So if you want to go ahead and read that, you're certainly welcome to. But today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes. Uh, And if you have not been with us or uh, if you're unfamiliar with this book, you might say that it's, uh, you could say it's the, the realest book in the Bible. Not in the sense that it's any more true than the other books, where they're all real, they're all true. Uh, but Ecclesiastes is real in the sense uh, that a, a cold bucket of water uh, in the face is real. Uh, it just confronts you with the hard realities of life. Um, and so if you, if you want Ecclesiastes in a nutshell, here it is. Life is short and often frustrating. Uh, a lot of times it makes you mad. A lot of times it makes you sad, right? And that's what, that's what the preacher, the, man, the, the person who's writing uh, Ecclesiastes, that's what he says, that's what he means when he says life is vanity, that it's frustrating, that it's, that it's short and it's hard to get a hold of. And every time we try to get our hands around it, it just slips out of our fingers. And so what's left to us in that? Does that mean that life then is hopeless? Are we just kind of doomed to this rinse and repeat cycle? Um, or is there meaning to be found in life under the sun? And that's the phrase he uses repeatedly throughout the book, under the sun. Life as we know it. Is there a way to find meaning and joy in life under the sun? Uh, and the answer is yes. And so starting last week and through the next couple of weeks, uh, he's beginning to build that case for us. Last week, uh, we talked about how life, uh, we ought to see life as a gift Life is not gain, it is a gift. It's a gift from God, and like any gift, it needs to be enjoyed. It's meant to be enjoyed. That's why God gives it. He gives things out of his good pleasure for our good pleasure. And so food and drink uh, and marriage and work, all of these things are God's good gifts, and we should enjoy them as gifts from the giver. And we get the most out of them when we treat them as gifts. Uh, When we treat life as a gift, rather than, right, if we make the gift itself ultimate, we actually ruin the gift, right? When we try to, for instance, when, when you try to make your marriage ultimate, you will be repeatedly frustrated, when you, when you make your children ultimate, when you make the gift of children an ultimate good, they They cannot bear that weight because it's a weight that only God can bear. And so what happens is we take that good gift and we turn it into a God and that God then crushes us. It leaves us disappointed. It leaves us empty. It leaves us frustrated. And so when we talk about enjoying life, we don't simply mean, you know, get all you can out of life because you're going to be dead tomorrow. We mean 
enjoy life as a gift from the giver. When we see, like, see life as a gift, or see rather the gifts of life uh, as pointing you to God. Now, so today, we're going to continue to see how we should enjoy life, this life that we have on loan from God. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 11. Uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab the one. There should be one in the rack in front of you. Um, if you're using that Bible, it's on page 559. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home with you. You can make that your Bible. Uh, on this condition, I'd love to talk about it. So if you, if you uh, are grabbing a Bible for the first time, if the Bible is something new to you, I would love to grab breakfast or coffee or lunch and let's talk about how you read this book. Because it's an amazing book, but it can be a very confusing book. And so I'd love to talk with you more about that. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 11, and we're going to read the first six verses. Let's give our attention to God's word. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know what will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for him to help us. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the goodness of your word and pray now that you would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It can rightly be said that a, that a mark of maturity is knowing how much you don't know. I have friends who have, uh, who have pursued uh, PhDs and doctorates, which is, you know, focusing all of your knowledge in one particular area. And many of them have said, after focusing all that reading and all that studying and all that writing, they go, I have no clue what I'm talking about. Right? It's a mark of maturity when you recognize how much you don't know. And think, about a, think about a little child. Uh, they, are, they are masters of their universe. They are experts, right? Why? Because their universe is so incredibly small. Mom, dad, toys. That's it. Right? Uh, I remember being a teenager. There's a kind of a funny irony of coming into adolescence. I remember thinking that my parents were absolute morons, right? When it came to living life, they had absolutely no clue how life was to be lived. What is decades of experience, right? When I have fellow 16-year-olds who have, who have a much better grasp on life than, than my parents do, right? 
And I remember it wasn't until my mid twenties. I think I, in my mid twenties, I went back and apologized to my mom. Um, and just so my teenage friends, uh, you don't feel like I'm picking on you. Uh, we do that at every stage in life, right? At every stage, there's this temptation to think I have arrived. I finally get it. And so it's a mark of maturity to know what you don't know. And that phrase, you don't know, comes up repeatedly in these six verses. Four times he says it in six verses. He says it in verse 2. You don't know what disaster may happen. Verse 5. You don't know how God brings the Spirit to a child in utero. You don't know the work of God who makes everything. Verse 6. You don't know what will prosper. There's a lot in life we don't know. There are lots of things we don't know. And I don't know about you, but I don't like not knowing. I like to know. Right? I'm, I'm something, uh, I'm, I'm risk averse. Right? I realize that's not everybody in the room, but I am often paralyzed by what I don't know. Right? What is, what is anxiety? But the fear, or at least in some cases, the fear of the unknown. Right? There are loads of things we don't know about life. And so the question that we're going to try to answer today is, how do I live with those buckets full of ignorance? How do I live life in a world that is full of unknowns? And here's the answer of the preacher from Ecclesiastes, don't let life's uncertainties paralyze you. Don't let what you don't know freeze you or scare you or hold you back. Instead, live boldly. That's what these six verses are about. Live boldly. Even in the face of uncertainty, live boldly. How do we do that? Well, first, he tells us to live with an open hand. Second, don't worry about waiting for the perfect time. And then third, to seek opportunity. Live with an open hand. Look again at verse 1. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. What in the world does that mean? Uh, The better translation might be send out your bread upon the waters. And there's two possibilities for what these verses are talking about. One possibility is he's talking about business. Uh, international trade was new, uh, was, a, was a developing thing when Ecclesiastes was written. And so to send your bread out meant basically to do business in international trade. And in that case, if that's what this is talking about, it's talking about business and investment. Then when verse 2 says, give a portion to seven or even eight, he basically is saying, don't put your bet. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Um, Or if we're using that bread metaphor, sending bread in ships, don't put everything on one boat because you don't know if that boat's going to sink or not. Put it on seven or eight. All right, so he's saying risk, but risk wisely. Be bold, but be wise. I was joking with our staff this week. I remember... um, when you talk about unwise, uh, unwise risk, there used to be a sign, uh, and it was over by the, 
the, where the Dollar General is now. It used to be Fred's. I remember driving by there, and there was a sign. It was like handmade, and it basically said, you know, for discount dentures, call this number. Y'all, that's a bad risk. I like, don't take that risk. Maybe, and maybe you did, and I'm sorry if I've now embarrassed you, right? I, like, if, if you're going to be working in my, if you're going to make false teeth for me, I'm probably just going to have a dentist do that, right? I'm not, I'm not calling the number of a guy I don't know to work in my mouth, okay? That's a bad risk. But we can make good risk. We can risk, but we can do so wisely. That's one way of looking at these verses. Another way of looking at these verses is he's talking about generosity, He's talking about giving and giving to the poor. And so talking about sending out your bread on the waters, what could seem more futile than that, than throwing bread on the water? But he says, do it anyway, right? And bread, food, give. Give generously. Give to seven or even eight. And so the number seven in Hebrew stood for perfection. And so when he says give to seven or even eight, he's saying, give all you can and give a little bit more. All right, so there's two possibilities for this opening verse. But the principle is really the same. Right, uh, because he says there at the, at the end of verse two, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what disaster may come upon you. And we saw that last week in chapter nine. Man knows not his time. We don't know how our circumstances are going to come out. Here's how many of us respond to that uncertainty. When we don't know what's going to happen, we close our fists, right? I'm, I'm, I'm worried about, I'm afraid of loss. I'm worried that I'm going to lose something. And so what do I do? I become greedy. I become a hoarder, right? I take my money and my stuff and I pull it tight because I'm afraid I'm going to lose something. And the preacher says, that's not living. Live with an open hand, not a closed fist. Why? Look in verse 1. He says, because you will find it after many days. There's a reward. It will come back to you. Maybe we're talking about investment. It'll come back to you in return, Lord willing, or in generosity. That's what Rick shared with us during our repentance of sin time. Uh, that we don't have to keep our stuff. We can give it away because there is a reward. It's more blessed to give than to receive. What did Jesus say in John 12, verse 25? Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In Luke 6, Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. How much? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There's a reward. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. It stings a little bit. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. One of the, I'm going to pause for a second. One of the genres that plays uh, when our sons are in the car is country music. Think about that, whatever you will. Uh, but if you get your ideas of religion, of what it means to, to follow Jesus from country music, uh, you will find yourself widely missing the mark. 
Because religion is often mentioned, but it's mentioned in very limited terms, right? It's, you know, throw your 10% in the plate. You've kind, of, you've kind of paid your dues to God, and now you can get on with living, right? Um, that's not what we're talking about here. C.S. Lewis, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare, In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch, pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our giving excludes them. Live with an open hand. That's a challenge for me. Uh, But so is the next point that he makes. He says, don't wait for the perfect time. Look at verse 3. Some things are certain. If you see rain clouds, it's going to rain. And if a tree falls, it's going to stay there. It's not like if a tree falls to the north, it's not going to get up and walk to the east, right? Some things are certain. But if you wait, verse 4, for the perfect time, you will never act, right? If the, if the farmer is always watching the skies, and, and a good farmer does watch the skies, right? There is, you do, there is a right time of the year to sow seed. There's a right time of the year to harvest There are some times that are better than others, so there is wisdom here. But if you're always waiting for conditions to be perfect, you will never act. If you're always watching the wind, you won't throw any seed out. Because you know what? The wind's probably always going to blow. And if you're always if you're always saying, Ah, God, the weather's not quite right today for me to harvest, I'm gonna wait till tomorrow, you might miss the opportunity to reap a harvest. There is no perfect time. So stop waiting and act. And I told you, that's, that's hard for me. I'm, I'm risk averse. I need everything to line up. I need to, all the boxes to be checked before I decide to do something. Why? I think I've narrowed it down to the fact that I'm simply afraid of failure. I'm afraid that some decision I make is going to fail and that will be the end of it all. My, um, uh, my wife, Rebecca, and I had been dating for a few months. She lived in Birmingham. I lived in Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, we were 26, and so uh, we were towards the upper end. We like to say, you know, at 26, you're not looking for a prom date anymore. You kind of know what you're looking for in a relationship. But for some reason, I would not pull the trigger. Right? Like I just like the stars had not perfectly aligned just yet. All of my questions had not been answered, and she probably answered them the best she could, and they were still that uncertainty, like what I mean, this is forever. What happens if I mess this up? And so I remember my friend Will came came through town and we were having dinner and uh he was asking me about this. I was sharing my angst with him over this decision. Uh, this major life-altering decision that I was afraid of messing up. And um, Will took out a napkin, and he took out a pen, and he wrote on that napkin, by this date, I will either propose to Rebecca or I will break up with her. 
And he drew a line at the bottom and he passed a napkin across the table to me and said, sign it. And I'm going to hold you to that. And I signed it. And the reason that I'm married is because I signed that napkin, right? <laughs> right? I, had to, I, I was waiting for the perfect time to act. There is no perfect time. Let me, let me be honest. There, there's no good time to get married. Right? It, it's, it's never going to be all right. You're never going to have enough in the bank account. You're never going to have, have checked every single box. And that applies to, to family as well, right? If you wait till you're ready to have kids, you ain't ready for that. There's no amount of ready, right? There's, there's no amount, there, there's not a perfect time to act. It's interesting, this year, uh, the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, they just issued their State of Our Unions for 2022. And their report challenges our common cultural narrative, right? The, the cultural narrative is that, that marriage is a, is a capstone event, right? So you pursue your course, get your education, get your career going, have enough in the bank, and marriage is the capstone that goes on top of that. That's, that's, the, that's our common narrative. And, that, and then, then your life will be satisfying, right? That the most satisfying marriages are those that, that wait until that, you've kind of reached this point. And they found research, that in doing their research, they realized that actually, no, that's not true. That those who got married younger, between 20 and 24 were at least as happy, if not a little bit more, than those who delayed marriage. So marriage as a cornerstone rather than a capstone, right? So going ahead and making that decision, now why? Well, instead of two grown individuals now coming into a relationship, right, you have two younger individuals who are growing together, right? So there's never, there's never a perfect time to act. I'm not saying, look, I don't know your situation. There's a lot of nuance there, okay? Don't rush out. Don't, don't rush to Vegas because of this sermon. All right, let's talk about that before you make that decision. But if you're waiting for the right time to pull the trigger, there's never going to be a right time. Just pull the trigger, okay? All right, so live with an open hand. Don't wait for the perfect time. And then finally, seek opportunity as God provides it. Seek opportunity as God provides it. Look again at verse 5. He says, you don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb. Now, we know a lot more about childbearing, uh, child growing than we used to know. We now know that when this cell meets this cell, it becomes this cell, and then those cells start dividing to create a living person. But how? Why? What says, like, how, does, how is it that cell, this cell is going to divide over here and that's going to be a toe? And this cell is going to divide over here and it's going to be a lung? We haven't figured that out. And I don't know that we will. Right? There's still, as much as we know, there's still so much we don't know. But God is the one who does know. And we also don't know the work of God who makes everything. So what do we do in light of that uncertainty? Well, one of the recurring themes of Ecclesiastes is you're not God. 
So stop trying. You're not God. So you can actually rest. You can relax. You can take a deep breath and let God figure out how this clump of cells makes this lung, this becomes a toe, this becomes a beating heart, right? God is the one who does all of that. So what we do, verse 6, sow your seed. And at night, don't let your hand rest. Make every, take every opportunity you can find, right? Because we don't know which one will prosper. What's he saying? Work at this and work at that. Since we don't know what will succeed, be flexible. Work boldly. Trust the one who does know. Think about this. I've used this illustration before, but since we live in a farming community, think about how, how farming is risky business. Right? You take seed and... You could go ahead and eat the seed, right? You could eat the the fruit that comes off the tree, and you've got a meal at least for a little while. Or you can take that seed and you can go throw it in the dirt. Now, on the face of it, that looks like absolute nonsense, right? I'm going to throw what I could eat, and I'm going to go throw it on the ground. I'm going to go bury it in the ground, right? But God has designed this system. And it is so full of variables we cannot control. The health of the soil, the type, the pest, the water, the sunlight, all of those things. We can, we can monkey with some of that, but most of those variables are out of our control. And yet, God has designed this system so that when that seed grows, it produces a harvest. And so that's where God's providence comes in, right? He's the one who's managing all the variables, So don't be afraid of failure. And don't bank on success. There are greater things than success and failure. If you know God is your father, then you trust him to work those things out. And what you do, we, we don't create opportunity. We just take advantage of the ones that are put in front of us. And that's what the preacher is telling us to do. Now, some of you may ask this question. What if it's too late? You're talking about investing and, and giving and making and, and taking action and and working, but but what if I've squandered my opportunities? What if what if I've made too many bad decisions and it's all it's all a wreck, the damage is done? Friend, again, you're not God. And if you still have breath even if it's for another week, there's still hope. So don't paralyze yourself because of your past sins and mistakes and damages. You can still live this way. You can still have a radically reoriented perspective on life. You can live boldly. How? What is it that frees us to live this way? Right? Even the best investors assume the risk because they expect a reward. Right? Nobody, nobody risks where there is no reward. 
We need some kind of certainty, some kind of idea that this is going to pay off. Right? It's the, it's the theme of every treasure hunting movie. Why does Indiana Jones fly all over the world, risk life and limb, solve all these puzzles? Fortune and glory. There is a reward at the end of the quest that makes the quest worth pursuing. So what reward makes living boldly possible? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew six, nineteen through 21. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's a win-win, right? Give everything, gain everything. Here's the key. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts follow what we treasure. And if what we treasure is Jesus, then we will never lose. If Jesus has our hearts, then there is nothing to lose. And we have gained everything. Which means we are free to live boldly for him under the sun. C.T. Studd, a missionary from a former age, wrote a poem. And in that poem he says this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you that you have made the universe, that you govern the universe. And even, Lord, we thank you that there's a lot of things we don't know. But we do know that you are in control. And if we know you through Christ as our Father, if we trust you, then we can know that all things will work out for our good. And that enables us not to live scared. It enables us not to live greedily. But enables us to live with an open hand. To live freely. To live boldly for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the grace of Jesus. That if we are in him, then there's nothing to lose. There's nothing that can be taken away from us. And we have already gained all of heaven's best. Would you help us to live boldly in light of that truth? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, something that we are doing this year uh, as for our congregational prayer times is we're using a, a small guide called the Awakening Prayer Guide. And we are on the third week. Uh, and that comes from Ligonier Ministries, if you're curious about that and want to look it up. Um, uh, week three of every month. Oh, it's on the screen. Get up. 
It died. Okay. It's in your bulletin. Uh, we're praying for our city and our state. Is that right? Our city and our nation. There we go. All right. So we are praying for our city and our nation. And so a um, couple of things that you can keep in mind here. Uh, one of our missionaries that we support works in Montgomery. His name is James William uh, with the Center for Urban Renewal and Evangelism. Um, we are praying for James this month. He is our, uh, he's our missionary of the month. He would have been here in person, but he is on a plane to um, Africa right now. So usually his ministry area is in Montgomery. Uh, for the next few weeks, it's going to be over in Africa. So um, but we're going to pray for James and for that trip, uh, as well as for um, our city and our nation. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our gracious God and King, we give you thanks and glory. Lord, we pray that you would make us a people glad to speak the truth uh, to the people in our community, uh, to the people in our state, uh, to the people in our nation. Father, indeed, that the word of your truth would transform and renew our nation and our state and our city. Father, even now, would you bring to mind those people uh, with whom we live and work and play who need to know the truth of your grace? And we'll pause and pray for them silently right now. Father, we pray for our brother James, as he heads overseas uh, to minister to your church in Africa. And we pray, Lord, for his ministry in Montgomery, that you would give him favor uh, in the neighborhoods uh, where he works, uh, that you would make him a faithful evangelist, evangelist and that you would uh, bear much fruit through him. Uh, we pray, God, that indeed you would help renew that city as a result of his gospel ministry, that you would change hearts and lives uh, through James and through the good news of your grace. Lord, we pray all these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right. Since we currently have no screen, we're going to close right there. So let's stand and let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
And God's people said, Amen.